Welcome to What the Up is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. In partnership with Friends of Latin America, Task Force on the Americas, and Massachusetts Peace Action, we broadcast every Wednesday, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Code Pink YouTube Live. Today's episode is Justice for Bertha and Victory for the Guaypanol 8 with guest Karen Spring, who is the host of the podcast Honduras Now. She is also the in-country coordinator for the Honduras Solidarity Network. I want to give you a brief background before I have Karen join us. So Berta was, uh, for those of you who don't know, Berta was a Honduran, Lankan, environmental activist, indigenous leader, and co-founder and coordinator of the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, COPIN. She won the Goldman Environmental Prize in 2015 for a grassroots campaign that successfully pressured the world's largest dam builder to pull out of the Aguazarca Dam at the Ria Gualcarque. Did I say that correctly? Gualcarque. <laughs> Six years ago today, she was assassinated in her home by armed intruders after years of threats against her life. A former soldier with the U.S. trained special forces units of the Honduran military asserted that Cáceres' name was on their hit list months before her assassination. Her assassins are yet to stand trial. Some good news. On February 24, after 914 days of arbitrary imprisonment, the defenders of the Guaypanol River were released. The village of Guaypanol sits downstream from an open pit mining project in the Carlos Escaleras National Park. Many locals view the mine as a threat to the regional watershed. Newly inaugurated Honduran President Giamara Castro has declared justice for Berta and on February 28 declared Honduras free of open pit mining. So Karen, welcome to tonight's episode and I think maybe uh, a little better title for today's episode is the fight for natural resource sovereignty and against neoliberalism and privatization of those resources <laughs> and the lives. That's that right, Terry. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it's such a pleasure to join you and Code Pink in this program once again. I'm really excited to chat with you today and definitely on this topic. So why don't we, um, well, today is just a huge day, sixth anniversary of the assassination of Bertha Casares. Let's talk about her, her life's work, um, and just you know give appropriate homage to her since it is the sixth anniversary of her assassination, and no one has stood trial yet for her murder. Um, so tell us a little bit about who she was and the work that she did, and how that now relates to this fight uh, in the village of Guaypanol? Sure, so Berta Cáceres was a very unique activist. Um, a lot of people talk about her as like an environmentalist, but she was very, very, um, she was anti-patriarchal, anti-capitalist, anti-racist. Um, she had a very, very unique ability to bring movements and bring struggles around the country, around the region together. And um, she her pace, she spent her whole life um, fighting um, in resistance 
denouncing um, crimes mostly against the Alenka people that are located all in Western Honduras. But she teamed up with indigenous groups all over the region to sort of fight for indigenous rights, sovereignty, territorial control. Um, Berta was just like a mastermind of so many of the strategies um, that her, the organization that she co-founded, COPIN, which is still in existence and which is run now by Berta's daughter, Bertita. Um, you know, she, they would, they wouldn't allow mining in their territories. They fought against hydroelectric dams that would never bring electricity to Lenka communities. You know, to, they defended um, forests from illegal logging. And it was just, her, her vision was just so unique. Um, and that's what made her one of the most amazing activists in Honduras. But it's also what made her such a target for the elite, for the military in Honduras and for um, the state. And so um, her struggle is um, still much, still so much alive. I mean, Copine calls it the Berta Cáceres cause because, you know, Berta Cáceres was murdered and a lot of people think that she was just murdered over her fight against the um, construction of the, um, the Aguasarca Dam on the Gualcarque River. But really, she was murdered because of her vision, of her resistance, of, you know, her, again, like fighting against mining, just like the Wapinol 8 are doing, and, um, and just her long trajectory of activism in the country. Um, so, I mean, her vision and her struggle is very much linked to this victory of the Wapinol 8, um, you know, both uh, the Wapinol uh, 8 that were imprisoned um, for over two years for defending their water source, as you mentioned, Terry, um, they basically, a lot of them sought their inspiration from Berta and from her struggles. And both Berta and the Wapinol 8 were defending water, were defending their rivers, and also just was would not accept that mining companies could come into their territories and just dictate whatever they wanted to do. And, you know, and because they both Berta and the Wapinol 8, you know, didn't allow that they were criminalized, like they tried to send Berta to prison as well, just like they did with the eight Wapinol uh, water defenders. And so there's just so much connection between the two struggles. And so today, as we commemorate Berta Cassidus, six years after she was, you know, murdered in her home, um, we're looking at this victory um, uh, linked to the struggle to defend territory in Tokoa Colon, where the Wapinol community is located. And we're seeing just how much they're connected. What Berta started, the Wapinol 8 move continued forward, and it's very much just connected. And um, so while we commemorate Berta's assassination, we know that her the seed that she planted all around the country is being continued forward and it's growing in other places, like in the community of Wapinol. She was such an inspiration in her lifetime and even more now, you know, after her death. I, I, I so remember that morning, the morning of the second six years ago, I got a text from Honduras. I mean, very, very early in the morning, sometime between like 3 and 5 a.m. Pacific time. And it was just so shocking because so, so many of us, I mean, in, it was shocking not because of the work and because, and we all knew that of the threats, but the year before in 2015, she won the Goldman Environmental Prize. And I think so many of us, particularly in the States, so naively believed that was like this invisible shield for her. We really, really believed that. Yeah, and, and it's funny because was... she... No, I'm sorry, sorry go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> 
I said, oh, we just really believed that. It was just so, you know, the morning of March 2nd, 2016 was just so shocking, you know, on several levels. Yeah. And I mean, she, she won that award in the, in the midst of like the, the heat that was on her for defending the Gualcarque River and the struggle to stop this internationally financed hydroelectric dam. And the people that murdered her are connected into the military structures of the state. They're connected all the way up to training from the United States military. And, you know, really, it was the international uh, system that killed her and the, the capitalist system, the neoliberal, global neoliberal system that killed her from the international financial institutions that funded the dam and that looked the other way when she said specifically to them, you know, this dam is violating our rights. It's linked to murder. Please stop funding it. And they wouldn't. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people thought that 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 the Goldman Prize would protect her, but it really basically put a target on her back in many ways. And it became very difficult for her. Um, and so today, Copin uh, did a whole uh, commemoration of, of Berta um, in their training center in La Esperanza, just like they do every year. And what they do is they commemorate her planting, is what they call it, um, the mm. siembra de Berta. They say that um, she's been planted and she grows and grows like a seed instead of her dying. And, you know, she was murdered the day and she died the day she was of her, the day of her murder. But instead, she just sort of continues to grow and grow. And that's what they celebrated today. Very, it's a really, really lovely ceremony, the things that they do every year to commemorate her cause and her life. I'll put the link to, can I put the link to that event in our comment section? I yeah. And actually Copine live streamed it. So people, okay. they have, concerts, I, I they saw have that. singers and yeah, they have yeah. a, it's a, it's a great event and it's, it's really inspiring. I'll share that with the audience. So those of you watching, I'll put that in the, in the program notes actually, so that it's there for you. Um, you mentioned uh, global capitalism and neoliberalism, and I, re I remember one of the first things said um, after the coup in 2009 um, with the Lobo government, one of the first things that he stated as new economic and foreign policy was Honduras is open for business. And so that just kind of put the whole natural resource uh, extraction industry on steroids at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, they lifted the moratorium on mining that had been imposed because of that event. Honduras was open for business. They later created the framework to the ZEDES, the Zones for Employment and Economic Development, which is like neoliberalism on steroids, like privatizing parts of Honduran land and selling them to the highest bidders. Um, they uh, privatized the National Electrical Energy Company, which is why there was a huge race to get concessions on rivers to construct hydroelectric dams, because companies were like, wow, they just saw dollar signs and profit from those, the construction of those dams. And so basically Honduras was open for business, just like ushered in this neoliberal model that, you know, we, we know all too well in Latin America and how damaging it is to the majority of the population to the benefit of a few. And a few people in the countries, but also to the United States, you know, to the so-called global north and to the international financial institutions that are often the masterminds of this model that is being implemented all over the region. Let's, um, I mean, Honduras is kind of the, the petri dish for all of this since June of 2009. And um, 
But one, there's one huge thing that's happened. And I'm, I'm happy to say I was part of this with you both in November and again in January. November, I think most of the audience knows that the um, National Party was um, put out of power with the election of Xiomara Castro in the Partido Libre coalition, November 27th of 2021. And Karen and I had the honor of attending her inauguration January 27th of this year. So, and it was just so wonderful to see her campaign platform. And then immediately after her inauguration, I mean, that very, very day, some of the policies went immediately into effect, foreign policy decisions specifically. But now as of Monday, there's been a, an overt halt to open pit mining. Yeah, I mean, the, the government, the Ziamara government has, I mean, they're, they're facing extreme difficulties, like an economic crisis has been declared in the country because of this, the situation of the economy and the situation of the state and state finances in itself. But the Ziamara situation that is, they've inherited. Right. Okay, yeah, inherited. absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for for <laughs> specifying that. But 12 years of a dictatorship, like a narco corrupt dictatorship means that you know, the, the state institutions have been totally like ransacked of funds. Um, and so despite the challenges that they face, I think that, you know, the governments, the new government, the Ziamata government's been in power for a little over a, a month. And they've just tried so hard to fulfill campaign promises that are really inspirational for a population that has sat through and fought through 12 years of a U.S.-backed dictatorship. Um, so, for example, like you said, um, the foreign policy gains, like they immediately recognized the Maduro government in Venezuela and booted the Guaido um, representative of the Venezuelan embassy um, in Honduras that the dictatorship had had um, supported. And then they, um, you know, they've uh, created, made electricity free for people, uh, poor families that consume less than 150 kilowatts uh, a month. Um, they, which is like huge, which covers like over a million uh, families around the country in a country that has 9 million people. Um, yeah. And just the other day, one of the ministers sort of declared Honduras free of open pit mining, which I mean, is a fantastic news for the whole country, but also for the Wapinol 8. And it's sort of the legacy of Berta Cáceres and of the Wapinol 8 and the struggle that they went through. Um, and the imprisonment that they faced to have a government now say that, listen, we're going to declare this ter our whole national territory free of open pit mining, something that I, I don't think is the case in, in, in the rest of the region, Central American region. Um, and so this is this is huge. And um, granted, it's not law yet. And there's still a lot of challenges. And a lot of people are sort of like, what are these companies, a lot of them Canadian and American? Are they going to sue the state for loss of profits? Are they going to use some of those international um, free trade treaties to um, to sue the state? But the, the the government seems to be really willing to fulfill the promises and to overturn a lot of the laws that the dictatorship put in place for the benefit of a very few families and U.S. and Canadian companies, basically. So it's been really inspiring, Terry. I mean, it's not easy, and the government is not perfect. But I mean, it's amazing to see what they've been willing to do in just over a month. And it's very inspiring. And it's it's created a sense of hope in the country that Honduras has lacked for so long. And yeah. there's a lot to be said for hope um, and yeah. for feeling hope again. 
And even for me, you know, I've just, it's nice to go to Honduras and, and know that, you know, the heaviness of the narco dictatorship is, it's still kind of there because it, all the structures haven't been dismantled, but it's just nice to know that, you know, there are friendly faces in the government that are willing to open their doors and give space to um, communities and movements and organizations that have been excluded for so long from those spaces. Well, you know, I think one of the first things I said when when you and I met in Tegucigalpa, it was like Saturday, the 22nd of January or so, was that, and you also, we, we, I think most of us who were election observers in November would say the same thing, even on November, and on election day was, there's this feeling of alegría in the country that I don't, I don't ever remember. I don't ever remember Honduras having, you know, people actually smiling, you know, and there, it is lighter and, and happier. And that sense of hope has created enormous opportunity enormous opportunity for the people. Oh yeah. And I mean, it's so it's, for me, it's been really interesting. Cause like I, I, I was in Honduras. I, I moved to Honduras in 2009. So I only know Honduras under a narco dictatorship. I don't know anything else. Um, I don't know another Honduras, you know, obviously Hondurans know another Honduras, th- those that are, you know, were born before 2009, but I don't. And so, you know, it's been so nice to see people that were in the streets, like fighting against the coup that were protesting the coup are now in positions of power. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really nice to see that it's very inspiring. And so I'm really looking forward to see what the government will do um, in the next couple of months. And obviously for the next four years that they're in power. You know, um, you mentioned how some of the institutions have changed and that for sure, again, going back to the the evening of the 22nd, which I'm referring to for our our viewers is was the uh, vigil that um, at the time President-elect Castro had called for in front of the National Congress in Tegucigalpa and how many people showed up. But we all commented on the attitude of the police and the military. They were like, I don't want to say friendly, but in but relatively speaking, yeah, they were actually they were actually friendly. I mean, that was just almost surreal, pleasantly surreal. Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing that Ziomara did when she um, arrived there that day the, with, to the Congress um, was is that she demanded that the police remove all the barricades that stop people from surrounding their Congress and being underneath the Congress because the Congress is sort of on stilts um, or, or posts, I guess. I don't really know how to explain yeah, like it. Pilots, but it's like on, yeah, pilots. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because I mean, when and and this is awesome news for your audience, too, is, is that um, so an extradition request came for Juan Orlando Hernandez um, to and, you know, ex-president less than three weeks uh, since leaving office, he was um, asked to the United States Southern District Court asked for his extradition. And so when the police were like gathering around his house, waiting mm-hmm. to arrest him, they didn't use barricades, they weren't allowed. And so people were showing up there and it was like much more of a, I think because the police and the military are now like, there's a woman in charge of them. And so she's made these statements that, you know, this is like, I'm not going to accept, you know, a military and police that commit abuses against the population. And so um, it's been really nice to see that change of attitude. Granted, it's not going to be easy because there's still groups and like, you know, organized crime working inside these institutions. But I think that it's really positive to see the attitude of these institutions change because of an order from 
one, a new president that's progressive and two, a woman. Um, so it's been really nice to see that. It's, I mean, I think it, it shows at a very, very human level that maybe almost the, so I don't know, I won't, I don't want to say almost everyone, but a good, a good majority of the country really does want to change on a very human level. You really do oh, want ab- something absolutely. different. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she's one of the most voted presidents in the history of the country. I don't think she's like the most, but she's one, she's right up there, like top like two or three or something. And I think that just the turnout um, in the elections was around 70%. And I think, I don't remember how many votes she got. Um, it's, it's, it's slipping my mind right now, but um, huge majority, majority. very, very clear that in people say like, mi presidenta, it's like, this is what we want. We voted for change. And they, they, and they talk like that. Like we expect change because we voted for president, the presidenta. And so, um, yeah, I think that um, there's a lot of hope um, in what Ziomara can do. One of the things she campaigned on was freeing the Wapanol eight. And, um, and that happened last week. Can you share with our audience um, what their struggle was? how it started give a little bit of history as to the, you know, they've also won human rights awards as well for their, um, for their work and their resistance. And um, yeah. So so the Wapino, well, the, it's interesting, Terry, it's actually really important for a U.S. audience to know this, but I mean, the reason why the Wapino eight and the, the, there was, there's more than just eight people that are accused in yeah. that case, but Basically, what happened is the a huge U.S. steel company called Nucor Corporation decided to team up with a Honduran mining company and wanted the raw materials in that nat- nat- in that um, reserve, that national park, um, and right where Wapinol is located. And the Wapinol community said, "No, you don't," because they started building an access road into and like and, and destroying a, a, a natural or a, a national park. And a, 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 like an area that's supposed to be protected. And so, you know, teaming, so Nucor teamed up with this Honduran mining company. And so the stakes for this Honduran mining company got so high because they were like, we're, we're being backed by this really powerful U.S. steel company. Like we need to plow down this, this mountain. We need to get rid of everybody that's going to resist our mining operation because we need to get those raw materials, get them exported to the United States or to wherever so that Nucor can use them as raw materials in their steel manufacturing. And so, you know, the Wapinol community said, you know, as you're building this road into this, um, into this park, this national park, our water is getting like dirt in it. And it's getting like, we can't use the water, the animals are dying, we can't swim in our river anymore. And so they started like a farm animals. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And, and them themselves, like they couldn't wash their clothes in the, in the river anymore. They would turn their taps on and mud would come out or like really, you know, muddy water. And so they started, they basically created like an encampment blocking the operations of the mining company. And that is what led to this incident, which led to um, basically uh, um, charges, trumped up charges against uh, 30 or something leaders, mostly leaders in the community. And eight of those like 30 or something that were charged um, basically were sent to prison. And um, some others were sent to prison, but they were released. 
And then, but eight stayed in prison. They were first in a maximum security prison, again, built by the United Mm -hmm. States um, and with support from the Honduran dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And then they were sent to a normal prison and they stayed there. And, you know, there was massive solidarity campaigns, Terry. There was, you know, so many different organizations, Code Pink, like you guys were involved, like the Honduras Solidarity Network. There was so many. I, I mean, I, it's impossible to name them all. There was universities. There was, they had a, like the, the team had a communication team. They had a legal team. They had all these like scholars on an international level. The UN said that they should be released, Amnesty International. So there was this massive campaign to free them. And despite all of the pressure, the, the Honduran, corrupt Honduran court system wouldn't do it because the owner of this mining company that's teaming up with Nucor is one of Juan Orlando Hernandez's cronies. Um, mm. And so Ho, who controls the Supreme Court, basically just refused to release them. And so when Ziamara took power in January, um, it sort of changed the attitude in the country. I feel like judges in the that were, you know, would generally not think twice about being corrupt. I think some of them started to be like, you know, I don't really know how corrupt I want to be. They started thinking twice because, you know, they know that Ziamara has a really strong anti-corruption position. And so I think like the political context and the solidarity and the huge amounts of campaigning and then just the dignity and the and the and the powerful nature of the Wapino struggle sort of led to their release. And it's very inspiring. I mean, they've been um, recognized by the National Congress. The new Congress just um, um, gave them an award or like a nomination of some sort of um, award. Um, they were uh, Ziamata in her campaign speech said that she would free them. There was an amnesty law that was passed to release them. But um, I think that just over time, the state couldn't hold them anymore and had to release them. So it's a huge victory. And it's something that everybody that was part of it, big or small, should should celebrate. They were in prison for over 900 days. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. 914 days, I believe. Is the, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that'd be that's pretty hard for those of us, you know, raised in the U.S. to think being in prison for a th- 900 days for protesting the development of a national park, especially given how we prize our national parks um, in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that's just really, you know, one of the things also I think it's important, and I know you're very good at talking about this, and, and, and you, have actually, you actually have personal experience with this, that, you know, when these were eight men that were in prison for 914 days and the principal breadwinners of their families and family is extended in, in Honduras culture and community oriented as well. So while they're in prison for 900 plus days, their, their families are at threat as well, security threat, economic threat and health and welfare, food, all all of those things. Yeah. And and I mean, just like in the US, when you send someone to prison, you send the whole family to prison. And then you add the sort of the difficult political context of this specific struggle of Wapinol. I mean, the families were getting threatened constantly, armed people showing up outside their homes, unusual things happening, military and police just showing up in the community or, or, or shots fired in the distance to scare people threats. I mean, it was endless. And I don't even know the extent to the threats, but I know that they, there was a lot of fear in that community as, as the families fought for the release of their, 
of their, um, you know, brothers and sons and husbands and partners. And, um, and so sending them to prison, I mean, now that they're out, this process of healing starts, like, first of all, they're, they have to run them, run the mining company out still, because the mining company is still trying to push forward. Um, and, um, you know, and they might be successful because of foreign investment and the role of Nucor corporation in that investment. Um, but also they have to heal from being in prison. I mean, being in prison is not an easy thing. I mean, you know, my partner Edwin was sent to prison in Honduras and, you know, years later, the, the, the effects of that imprisonment stays with you and stays with your family because it affects your whole family. So they need to rebuild their lives and they sort they're still going to need support. But, um, I think that we have to celebrate the victory of them being released. It's an important well, moment. It's- so inspiring. Well, and for Edward, Edwin too, when he was released from prison, it's so inspiring for everyone else risking their lives to do this work. And not just in Honduras, you know, all over the world, Latin America specifically. And I think, you know, I'd really throw in Colombia uh, because it's so violent there um, against uh, indigenous people and environmentalists. Um, it's just so, it's almost unbelievable, actually, and so, so inspiring and motivating for so many people to see that despite the extraordinarily, you know, extraordinary risk, that's, it, it's possible. It's, it's really possible. And um, so who, um, well, I guess I should tell the audience and maybe we can share a link to your Honduras Now podcast because you attended um, the trial of the eight, Guaypanol eight. Every day you were there and you have extensive notes and coverage and commentary about it. And it's really worth, uh, for those of in the audience who want to know more, it's, she, Karen did a phenomenal job covering the trial. But now that they're free, what does this mean for other uh individuals in Honduras and organizations, and I guess I'm specifically, what comes to top of mind for me specifically is the Garifuna community on the Atlantic coast of Honduras. What sort of hope and inspiration is there now for additional groups pushing back? Well, I think there's a lot of hope. I think that the, I think that the release of the Wapinol, um, the Wapinol uh, water defenders, I think that that has it's a huge victory. And I think people are very happy about it. Um, But it hasn't been easy. And, you know, despite the fact that the context in Honduras is changing because of the new government, there are a lot of things that are going to take a long time to um, change. And one of that one of those is is the attitude of the military and the police and also the organized organized crime that Mm -hmm. has taken over Honduras. And so Ofrene, which is the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras that represents the Garifuna people on the North Coast, the Atlantic Coast, like you mentioned, um, they are still facing a lot of threats. And they also have been, you know, arrested and put in prison for defending their territory. And because they are Black, and they face a lot of racism um, from global structures, global policy, but also nationally and um, their struggle is is very important and very unique too. But I think that um, they're so united too, and they're very um, strong in their in their struggles. I think that um, there's a lot of possibility there um, for some victories as well. And I mean, so far there's been a lot of um, 
Garifuna leaders in the Trujillo Bay area, which is really close to Wapinol, actually, who've been arrested and all of them have been released after facing oh. after being in prison a couple of nights. So, I mean, it's, it's not easy because being arrested is never fun and it's horrible and it takes a lot of resources and time. But I think it goes to show that they're very united and they're they're just moving forward and they, they'll keep fighting and resisting. And so I think Wapinol is a really important victory and it gives a lot of hope and it reminds people that if you keep fighting you can achieve what you hope to achieve um and the, so i think that that's what it's built of the seeds of berta's death a huge yeah, success her planting, yeah. <laughs> her planting yeah, yeah. even though it doesn't sound it doesn't sound right in english but in yeah, english, yeah. yeah. But, but look at but look at what's happened I mean, here, here we are talking about, you know, the, you know, the victory of the Guaypano 8 on the sixth anniversary of her assassination. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Her life was amazing. Oh, yeah. And, and, here we and are. for sure, she, she was present in that, right? Every single time yeah. there was a, there was a, a gathering or a protest or anything related to Wapino, there was pictures of Berta, there was altars for Berta, there was candles lit for Berta. And so everyone knows that she's present and she's there fighting as well. And, you know, through her, her siembra and the seeds that she's planted in different struggles around the country. Berta vive. Mm-hmm. How can, um, how can our viewers get involved? Where, where can they get more information on both Berta on the Guaypanol and on your work, I guess I'll have you just share all those <laughs> websites okay, and, and Twitter accounts and I'll post them for the audience as well. So, but, but yeah, um, so that's for anybody that's who a wants lot, to but more. yeah, those are going to be a lot of links. So like, sorry, no, that's for good. List, but I mean, if, good. yeah, if people want to know more about Berta, about her, her cause, about her case, um, uh, one of the people that was convicted for um, murdering, being involved in her murder, which was a military officer that was trained at West Point, he actually is going to be sentenced in April. And um, oh, wow. and not everybody, like, for example, the family that financed the dam and that financed her murder or the international financial institutions have not been held accountable. So people can check out all the things related to her case um, on Copine's website. It's copine.org or org. They also have a fantastic social media. They have Instagram, they have Twitter, they have um, Facebook, and a great website where all that information is located. And then for the Wapinol, they have a website as well. It's called Wapinol Resiste in Spanish, um, dot org. And that's where a lot of information and actions and everything are, are, are located if people are interested in that struggle. Um, and then I'm a member of the Honduras Solidarity Network, just like Code Pink is. And so people can check out um, the Honduras Solidarity Network's um, social media. Um, and that's so just Google Honduras Solidarity and there's a Facebook and Twitter. And then if people are interested in my work, I um, posted, um, I'm posting on HondurasNow.org and I have a Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Honduras Now basically is um, what it is. And people can check out my podcast called Honduras Now. So that's a mouthful, Terry, but um, that's for basically people <laughs> no, can but get it's more information. Great. It's so great for people to know how expansive the work is. It's really great. And I really, as I mentioned before to the audience that, you know, your, your podcast is, is fantastic um, for anybody, for many, many issues and 
all things related to Honduras, but but um, specific to, t to today's episode is your coverage of the Wapenol trial. That was phenomenal work that you did diligently every Thank day. You. And it was amazing. I think it's important to mention now that you're 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 saying this is is that um, I feel like Honduras. I'm a big believer that um, international solidarity played a huge role in getting overturning 12 years of dictatorship in Honduras. And even though like a lot of people don't really think that, you know, writing a letter or sending like $10 or $20 to the Wapinol political prisoner families or is very much, I feel like like every, everybody that just sort of came together and worked together, I feel like there's a lot to be said about solidarity and the importance of how much we pushed for 12 years and just like, you know, getting the voices of Honduran organizations out there, assisting them, building, you know, working off what they were saying and demanding and, and getting it out there more internationally. And so I think that all the people listening tonight that took action in any way, pat yourself on the back. It's a victory. Thank you for doing that. And there's just so much work moving forward and people can check that out on the sites that I said before. Okay. How wonderful. And I will post all that um, information in the, in the program details as well, so that all of you can reference that. So Karen, thank you for another wonderful conversation and for all your work and for all your knowledge. It's always so great to, to, to talk with you and, and work with you. I just really feel very privileged to know you and to be able to share um, work with you as well. So well, same, same to you, Terry. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you have a fantastic program as well. Every week, it's a big commitment, but it's so important and amazing. And thank you so much to Code Pink for the work that they do around the world and, um, and in Honduras. So thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And I want to remind our, our audience that you've been watching What the F is going on in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. We broadcast every Wednesday on Code Pink YouTube Live, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also now find us on Apple Podcasts. And, uh, and Spotify, I hesitate to say Spotify, I guess it's a little controversial right now, but it's there and wherever you find your podcast. And also uh, be sure to catch Code Pink Radio, which broadcasts every Wednesday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on uh, Pacifico radio stations, WBAI out of New York City and WPFW out of Washington, D.C. And be sure to catch Honduras now as well. So... Okay, everyone, we'll see you next week. And um, thank you. Thank you for tuning in.